This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to season three, episode five. Should I do my like phone sex version of it now? (laughs) (laughs) This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to season three, episode five. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll, I'll buy whatever. I have lived in this town for a good many years, but I've always had Broadway ideas. And I guess I was born to be a sport. I went two weeks in a summer resort. I think about consent a lot, and I think about a lot about the limitations of consent as like the sole structure to navigate like our interactions with other people, especially just because like there's so much that we don't know about ourselves as well as so much that we don't know about others. It feels like almost impossible to negotiate the extent of like what could come up in a space. And, and I think there is that space if you want like a very specific scene or a very specific interaction where there's not a lot of risk involved. But I think like vulnerability and love and like being in deep relationship with others really does involve a lot of risk. Hi, this is Dorothy Santos, director of Magic at Five and Nine. This is Xiaowei Wang, creative director and director of Magic. You've just heard Danielle Blunt, a sex worker, community organizer, and public health researcher. She's also a co-founder of Hacking Hustling, a collective of sex workers and accomplices working at the intersection of tech and social justice. In this episode, we talked to Blunt about consent, working outside of capitalist structures, and the role of ritual in her work. This conversation contains a little more adult conversation than most of our episodes, touching on topics of sex, power, and consent. Listeners should also be advised that there's at least one great pun, a lot of laughter, some tips on making a comfortable bed for rest, and just a whole lot of wisdom about human relationships from Blunt that we loved. And we'll close with a great discussion of the power dynamics in tarot, from the lover's card to the devil, and an interpretation of the four of pentacles you won't want to miss. I was just 15 when I learned how to cuss. I learned it driving the hotel bus. The music for this episode is I'm a 12 o'clock fellow in a 9 o'clock town, composed by Harry Von Tilzer and performed by Byron G. Harlan in 1917. It's music from the dawn of the Jazz Age and the Rider Waite Smith deck, one of the most popular and influential tarot decks in the world. I ought to live in a town this size, and I ain't ashamed to tell you that I'm too. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Blunt, and hear so much of your wisdom around so many things. To start off with, I'm wondering if you could briefly just introduce yourself, your work, and how you see the different pieces of your life fitting together. Well, first, I'm super excited to be here and have this conversation with you. I I cherish every time we get to to chat together. A little bit about me. I am Danielle Blunt. I am a dog mom, a leather dyke, and homebody, and trying and failing to embody my anti-work politic. Um, A a little bit about the, the work that I do. I'm a disabled sex worker, community organizer, public health researcher, And I organize with an organization I helped co-found called Hacking Hustling. And with Hacking Hustling, I work on participatory-based research and programming at the intersection of sex work and technology. 
I do a lot of cross-movement work teaching digital security and trainings for folks who are organizing in criminalized economies and spaces. So I do trainings and work with the abortion access movement and other movements for bodily autonomy as we're seeing increased gender-based criminalization across the states. I do so many different things. This question's so hard. I tried to start with talking about something that wasn't work-related, and that was also really hard to to find out like what I identify outside of work. I'm also a full-spectrum doula, yoga teacher, and I've been a professional dominatrix for around 15 years at this point. And that practice really revolves a lot around ritual, holding space for people, explorations of pain and taboo. And I like to think of it as sort of like carving away at flesh to create something that's new. And for rest... I'm chronically ill, I'm disabled, and so rest is a really huge part of my life. The sex work that I do affords me some of like the space to be able to really lean deeply into rest and to like create a life for myself that is aligned with what my body is able to do. Like I of course I like push myself too far sometimes, but rest is like a really really important part of my practice and I feel like the older that I get, the more comfortable that I want to be. And I've been thinking a lot about like technologies of comfort and like how we can create spaces of comfort for ourselves. And especially when when sick, I spend so much time in bed, both as a whore and as a disabled person who's bedridden for like long swaths of time. Like in these technologies of comfort, I love to surround myself with like natural fibers, linen, silk, cashmere. I like moved my bed around in my room at a friend's suggestion so I can watch the sunset from my bed. So like even if I don't get to leave bed for like months at a time, at least like the space that I have created for myself is conducive to being like comfortable and cozy. And so that that's really what I think about rest is like creating spaces that are nurturing, soft and fulfilling, both in workspaces and when not able to work or don't want to work. One of the things, as long as I've known you, that I find incredibly inspiring is you started off talking about how you're doing this incredibly impactful work around digital security, sex worker organizing, abortion access. In my mind, I'm like, you're so prolific. And also your emphasis on rest. And I feel like so much of this comes from your just deep capacity and knowingness around both boundaries, safety, and consent. And I'm curious for the rest of us who are just like, how does Blunt do it? Like, <laughs> you know, you said earlier, canceling, canceling things is my love language. I'm curious if you have any advice for the rest of us. I mean, I think so much of my work is collaborative and community driven. Like none of the publications that I put out are solo authored. And I think that's like a huge part of it. And also like, I work a lot with other disabled sex workers and or like sex workers who are neurodivergent, who are parenting or caregiving. And I think just like having like a lot of space and graciousness for not getting things done. I also fund my organizing through sex work, which I find to be a much easier path than like constantly in this hustle of applying for grants and like selling yourself as an organizer, it feels much easier and like less labor for me to sell sex and fund my organizing than like convince an institution that the work that I'm doing is, is meaningful. It's pretty difficult to get funding for sex worker organizing. So I think that's also part of it is that like, 
I am in a privileged position and like in the sex work that I do and that that funds my work. But I think like I've just learned so much from working with other disabled folks, with other neurodivergent folks and just like really like moving at the speed of capacity and like making your own deadlines that can be shifted and like aren't hard and like not having to have a product or an outcome and I know like we met at this fellowship that we had where there wasn't the need for deliverable. And I was like, this is such a nice space to be in to like be funded for nine months, semi-funded for for nine months and like not have to do a deliverable. And I'm like, I'm not going to fucking do anything. I'm just going to like let this like lend to the work that I'm already doing. I really think it's not like me being prolific. It's building community relationships and knowing like what my strong suits are where I need help from others and like being able to collaborate on that level I feel like has been what's been like really effective for me I think like academia really pushes the like sole authored space and I feel like I get to operate a little bit outside of academia with like dipping a toe in to see if I can get some money sometimes (laughs) and like coming out of it but I I really think co-authored things, collaborative projects are what's most impactful and able to like bring our collective knowledge together and share share that. And I think this dovetails with something that I think you and Anna talked about before about like working outside capitalist structures and how to do that. And so in the similar vein of like trying to do work collectively, I'm wondering if you could talk about your explorations into capitalism and how that fits in with your current work. I think about it like in two different ways. One in sex work kind of being like both work and not work, as well as just like so much of the work of community organizing, of fighting against capitalism and like the horrible impacts of capitalism is creating community, which I think is like one of the things that is deeply threatening to capitalism is developing relationships and community and like networks of care. And so like a lot of my work is around mutual aid and building disabled networks of care where we're able to provide resources when able to, it's like always passing like the same $20 around, but like being able to like take care of each other when like the state fails to do so. And just like generally building community. And I feel like that's where I put most of my energy into like these reciprocal relationships of care with like other disabled folks and disabled friends. Community is a really big thing for me. And in regards to sex work, it like kind of makes me think of a panel that Hacking Hustling put on with the Disabled Sex Workers Coalition. It was called Sex Work as Work, Sex Work as Anti-Work. And it was sort of talking about the history of the term sex work, which was coined in the 1970s by a sex worker activist, Carol Lee, and how this word was really, really useful in finding some space in like a larger labor movement by conceptualizing sex work as work and how it's also not always totally accurate for some of like the survival sex workers or folks who see their work like outside, more outside of capitalist structures. And I think I was like really inspired by those conversations in conceptualizing sex work, both as work and like part of a labor movement and also as something that's a little bit outside of normal capitalist structures. Like it's like, right, like all all the work that we're doing under capitalism is under capitalism. Like there's no way around that. Coming from like a fairly privileged place, I'm able to work without like a 
a third party other than platforms that take a cut from from a huge cut from my income but I'm able to like I'm my own boss I'm it's accessible for me as a disabled person I can make my own schedule I can set up a life for myself where I don't take meetings before noon where like I can charge a high hourly rate so I am able to like take time to be in bed when I need to be in bed and rest and like I know that there are so many folks do sex work because of disability or caregiving or being denied access to a formal economy and and I think like so much of movement work is also like low key funded by sex work that it gets tied back into what I was first talking about about how community also like community building community building efforts and community organizing also feels part of that like anti-capitalist effort that is then funded by the sex work that I'm doing and like yeah I saw I saw a tweet recently and this is like always the conversation in like like Marxist and anti-capitalist spaces of like if we live in a world in the future when like there's no more capitalism will there be sex work and I saw a tweet that was like what about instead of focusing on this question we like talked about actually meeting the material needs of sex workers and I think like (laughs) that's just like a really important part of the conversation like what rather than about like debating whether or not we should exist or if our work is exploitative understanding that all labor under capitalism is exploitative and like folks have more or less access to different types of labors there's there's reasons people do different types of work and working towards decriminalization decarceration destigmatization of sex work towards full abolition more generally rather than like theorizing if sex work will exist in some like work future. I feel like academics especially really like to sit on their hands <laughs> with questions like that. Yeah. It's absolutely. Like, we'll just theorize <laughs> instead of actually like thinking about research as a way to contribute to organizing. Or or even like oh, you don't have access to this technology. What if we design a new technology for you rather than like what if I just give you money? Like what if straight up we just give you money? <laughs> and like fight to like have all the tools that are accessible to folks who don't trade sex accessible to sex workers as well Mm. Mm. yeah it's like such a moralizing way of treating people but I think also to the value it feels weird to use the word value in a discussion on capitalism but to the part of the conversation (laughs) (laughs) to the importance of rest you know recently I heard Kelly Burton from Black Innovation Alliance say that like whether you're like organizing or like a leader you know or just an entrepreneur whatever it is you wake up every morning and it's like you have to like look in the mirror and there's a lot of self-work to be done too and it's like you know, I think on the panel, she was like, oh, it's cute for us to be like, yeah, we're building community and everything, but it's also really hard. And I'm curious if you had any reflections on that. Community is hard. I feel like we're like constantly learning and unlearning things and like learning how we want to be in relationship with people and then figuring out the the skills and the tools to be in relationship with people in the way that we would like ideally like to. I feel like capitalism is so traumatizing and alienating and like we really through like not like 
being like raised more collectively and with access to so many resources that create like a stable environment and like not treating care work as labor that's compensated. I feel like we miss out on so many opportunities and we there's really just like so much learning and unlearning to do of like how we want to be in relationship with each other that like really feels like a lot of a lot of the work. Now they can't give a party lesson I recite Got to have me if they want things right When it comes to a dance I ain't no fool I took well blessing from the correspondence Please don't mind. I'm I'm in a studio right now. That's quite a shared space. There, I have a lot of questions related to to rest and consent, but the one that I wanted to start off with, since this show is about magic and work, and a lot of magic being about ritual, where does ritual fit into BDSM work? So ritual is something that I think a lot about, and I think there's like two ways that I could take this conversation. Is like one, the rituals I do to like protect myself, like going coming in and out of a workspace have been something that like I've learned a lot through trial and error and like being able to show up and hold space for someone in the context of a BDSM scene. It takes a lot of self-work, a lot of that work that like Shawai was talking about. And there are so many rituals that I do before work and after work to kind of like come into my work persona so that like I am kind of like a vessel that can hold space for someone else, for someone else's desires and fall into this, this like space of like deep attunement to be able to do attachment work, to like play with neuroplasticity within, within a scene, as well as rituals that I do after work to like come back into myself and like integrate what needs to be integrated and like not take on the energy of another person as my own. And I feel like that's like not specific to a BDSM scene, but something I really learned in the context of BDSM because you're doing such intimate work. I feel, but I feel like even just like the ritual of like getting dressed and commuting to work and coming home, like creates a barrier and it can like be thought of as like a magical practice of creating the space between your work self and the person you are when you're like just in bed or with your friend or with a lover. And I think when I don't do those rituals, I get a little bit stuck in this space that's not totally me. And so I think about ritual in regards to BDSM work in in that way a lot that's like more applicable to like all types of labor, I think, of like knowing what's yours, knowing what's mine, and like being able to like come home at the end of the day just with what's yours in a way that serves you. And then in like BDSM more generally, I think very much of the scenes that I do as a ritualistic practice, right? There's setting intentions, there's a beginning, a middle and an end, there's integration. And it it really has like this intention at every step of, of the way. And a lot of the work that I specifically do does have like I don't think like all BDSM is necessarily ritualistic, although I think there is like a certain ritual to sex work and like setting the scene and like how kind of like the arc of how that like may go. But for me, I'm really interested in playing with taboo and playing with attachment work. I do a lot of like mommy play, which feels like deeply attuned attachment and like what is it like to be like really attuned to for like an hour and a half and like feel like really seen in either like this way that you're craving in a way that was like lacking in 
in childhood or in a way where like someone is so attuned to you while you're exploring things that you're deeply ashamed of and like how can that transmute shame into power is something that I think about a lot and what a lot of my rituals look like. There's also like more explicit like elements of magic, but I think of magic as like creating space for neuroplasticity, for creating space in the brain to change and like come to new meaning and make new meaning out of our experiences through relationships. Like so much of my work is about relationships, whether it is community organizing or through like holding space for a relationship to shift something in the self. I mean, I'll speak for myself that I feel like I've struggled throughout my life. And I think a lot of that too, is we live in this world and I'm using this word very intentionally because it's a little bit of a conundrum. I've been thinking about how we are bound using that word, no pun intended, but kind of like Loki, yes, (laughs) that we are bound to certain obligations, traditions, things that we have experienced. You know, you, you talk about mommy play and one of the things I wanted to kind of speak to or ask you about, and it's, it's quite complicated, is what about consent in terms of not even just BDSM, but just broadly how you look at it? Because there are things that, again, we are bound to or we bind ourselves to out of sheer obligation to fulfill some kind of abstract idea of someone's idea of us. So in terms of, and what I mean by that is, you know, pleasing our partners, pleasing our family, pleasing our co- colleagues and co- co-workers, that is a type of bondage that I think people forget that we are subjected to every day. And so I'm curious how you answered in relation to how ritual is a part of your practice. How then do we start to reevaluate and re-examine and redefine consent? I fucking love this question. I love this question. I think about consent a lot and I think about a lot about the limitations of consent as the sole structure to navigate like our interactions with other people, especially just because like there's so much that we don't know about ourselves as well as so much that we don't know about others. It feels like almost impossible to negotiate the extent of like what could come up in a space. And, and I think there is that space if you want like a very specific scene or a very specific interaction where there's not a lot of risk involved. But I think like vulnerability and love and like being in deep relationship with others really does involve a lot of risk. And I don't really feel like consent is necessarily like, right, like there are like straight up violations of consent. I think consent is a really good construct for being able to talk about that and like what happens when that consent is violated. But when there's so much that comes up in ourselves that we might not have language to communicate about, as well as like, we don't, we're going into these relationships without ever being able to know everything about another. There is so much of this space that can't necessarily be negotiated. And so like, I think consent is a really limiting construct, right? There's so much about our desires that we're unaware of. There's so much that we have repressed that we don't really know what's going on. We don't know. And this is, this is also like how I feel about like calling something a safe space. It's like, right, like I can do whatever is in my power through negotiation to create a safer space for us to explore dangerous and risky things. But like, if you don't know that like me touching your left shoulder from behind is a trigger until it comes up, like there's no way to negotiate that. And I think that the type, especially the type of play, I really enjoy edge play. And like, so like what is at the edge of your desire? What is slightly beyond 
that desire, those repressed desires. And I think especially like when we're playing in that space, it's so important to have more complicated conversations than just here's a hard yes or no list, right? Like that can be really helpful for like a pickup scene that you're playing. Like, don't do this. This is what I like. But right, like if we're playing with more complicated things and like really risking vulnerability, I I think it's much more important to ask questions. Like obviously like asking like the hard yes, hard no questions is, is important, but that feels like the bare minimum that should be done. And I think questions like, what do we do when something goes wrong? And like, not if, but when, like if you're exploring intimacy, like something is going to go wrong. And I think like previously establishing ways to check in creates space as well as like, if I make a mistake or like when I make a mistake, like what do we do? How do we come back together? There's a story that a friend of mine tells about how, I don't know if this is like a myth or a story that I was told by a friend, but like someone was asking about like how you choose who does your tattoos. And their response was, I I choose artists whose mistakes I'd be willing to live with. And I think that that's such a powerful thing that I think about in, in my work. It's like, assuming that I have like your best interests at heart, if we're exploring like deep and complicated things, like, are you going to be able to survive a misstep, right? That's not to say that like an explicit abuse of power is not like a direct violation of consent. But when we're exploring things on like the edges of ourself or the other, it's so likely that you'll encounter something that could be overwhelming or unanticipated. And there is so much risk just in intimacy and vulnerability, like not even like with straight BDSM that I think consent does not bring up. And right, like when we're talking about magic too, it's it's the same thing. There are so many rituals that you do where something unexpected comes up. And if you're doing good magic, if you're doing like a good scene, there are things that you don't know will come up. And I think you can like inform people of that, that you don't know what might come up during a reading and like what to do. I actually, Shawa, you gave a reading to me, which I loved your like, the way you negotiated that was a way like that seems very similar to kind of how I negotiate a scene of things that might come up that feel unexpected. And I, I loved some of the questions that you, you asked in that space. And right, it's not just like, do you consent to a reading? But like, what's not being said in that space is that you're also consenting to like the unknown which is a really difficult thing. My friend, and she's a psychoanalyst, Dr. Avi Sakatapalu wrote this gorgeous book called Sexuality Beyond Consent. And she like really complicates discourse around consent. I read it as like a love letter to edge play and like how limiting of a construct consent can be. It's this like really urgent and generative conversation on trauma and consent and overwhelm and theories of sadism as like a productive force rather than like a strictly negative force, like in classic psychoanalysis. And I I think it's like a really important book that moves the conversation of consent forward for both like sexual experiences, any type of intimacy, as well as magical practices. Damn blunt. So that proverbial mic that just dropped, like it actually combusted and exploded. (laughs) I'm curious if you we could dive into power a little bit more. Maybe it's power within consent, but I'm thinking also like 
power within tarot. And I feel like if we talk about the cards, that'll surface with some insights about power. So yeah, are there ways, if we look at the tarot, that you're seeing different power dynamics? And what does that bring to us in the ways that we might reflect about violation, consent, and boundaries? Like, you know, whether it's the emperor or the hierophant or the empress, just these different forms of power. I just want to give like a disclaimer that I'm a tarot bottom. I love to receive tarot readings <laughs> and am not super fluent in tarot as a, as a medium, as a top. Um, but I do think a lot about tarot and power dynamics. And I think like there's a really interesting conversation to be had about, especially in the Rider Waite deck, it's like such a rich deck with so much symbolism and there's so many elements of power, whether it be like where figures are positioned I think a lot of it about power dynamics in the like relationship between the devil and the lovers and like the similarities that we see on the card and like the body, like the body language feeling like very, very similar. The devil card is often read as like the BDSM card, the dark card, like the shadow self card. And the lover card is seen as this like great thing that would be like wonderful card to draw. Thinking about power dynamics is thinking about relationships. When I'm looking at the devil card, there is this like angel devil figure in the background with horns cascading over this couple who are attached by loose chains around the neck. There's like fire in the background. There's a lot of, of darkness. There's a pentagram over the devil's head and there are tails growing from the people, it, it's actually like, it doesn't feel like that scary of a card to me, but I think it like does invoke some of that darker energy as well. And with the lovers, it's a much brighter card. There's much more color, richer color, more, a little bit more dynamic. And there's an angel figure in the place of the devil. So the, the cards are like mirror images of each other with different colors and different symbolism within them. So in the lover's card, a kind of more angelic figure stands over with some clouds. You can see more nature and there are two figures in the foreground that are unchained and kind of looking at each other like la is how I don't know how to describe that that motion, but there is some like more movement in their bodies and there is a notable lack of of chain. There's more nature in the background. It seems like more things are growing and there's like more lush lush nature and there's not it's not one of those cards with the heavy black background. And I, I think the other important thing when I look at the devil card is right like there are the chains. They don't look like they're trying to go anywhere. There's not like this tension in their body, like they're looking to flee. The chains look like they could be like slipped over over their head. They don't look like particularly upset about being in this situation. The more I'm looking at it, it's like it, they're like really connected, right? Like being bound with someone isn't always a bad thing. Like sometimes like that's what we most desire and what we're striving for. The balance of, I mean, it's different for everyone, but like the balance between like autonomy and connection. And yeah, I think that these two cards are just like incredibly rich and dynamic. I was thinking about like the relationship between the cards and like, especially in the devil and the lovers thinking about like how, right? Like exploring only one of those is really only exploring like part of the range of human emotions and it isn't until like exploring both of those sides that we're like really risking 
vulnerability. Like, I, I mean, I can, I can say this to someone like really into kink. I know it's not for everyone, but it doesn't even have to be BDSM, but like being able to love and integrate the shadow side of the self, whether it be through BDSM play, whether it be through other types of rituals, whether it be through like psychoanalysis, somatic body work, breath work, like any type of this self-work that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. I really think when I think about power dynamics in the tarot, I also think about like the relationship between the cards and how they are in relationship with each other. Blunt. Oh my goodness. I have so many things in response to what you just shared. And may I be a tarot service top? (laughs) That's something I I learned from my, my partner. We're kind of talking about Dungeons and Dragons and how, you know, there was this kind of conversation around, oh, isn't just the dungeon master a service top? And it's like, oh my God, yes, yes. Thank you, goddess, for that. But no, seriously, just what you're saying also about kind of the relationship between the devil and the lover's card. I think a lot of it too, people oftentimes in my mind have it a little bit inverted. I think a lot of people's Christianity or very puritanical thinking around the devil card is actually misguided, you know, possibly, you know, because the devil was an angel. And also not just that, the devil's also like, hey, I'm here for a good time. And I think one of the things that the lover's card oftentimes is not perceived as is love is actually hard work, however you want to define that. So when people see it and they, they become elated because there's this kind of symbology or perception of its, its expected joy, it, it's, it's actually not that. You learn the hard way that the lover's card takes so much more work than you than one thinks. <laughs> I was telling Anna this earlier, but I have a very particular reading of the Four of Pentacles cards. And I haven't mentioned this in the podcast yet, but I have really beautiful feet and this is related. So I should mention this on every podcast. But the Four of Pentacles cards to me with this like guy like holding these pentacles, the pentacles under his feet is really like the foot fetish card to me and like feet can be very skilled at manifestation (laughs) as as well as part of my manifestation practice and like this card to me I kept pulling it a lot when I was seeing this this foot fetish client who when I like started making more money than I had in previous time and it like really became about mutual aid and sharing the reaps of your foot fetish money is just like always how I see the card. And now whenever I see the card, I really laugh of like, right, like you're so limited in how you are in relationship to others when you hoard, hoard wealth. And like, I think specifically with sex work and the reasons why folks do sex work, it's so important to share resources and sort of be in in relationship with each other and take care of each other and share the foot fetish well. (laughs) Blunt, I will never not think of the Four of Pentacles the same way. I really love that you introduced that thinking. I've never really had that kind of introduction of allowing one's um, taboos be a place of safety as well. And also what's interesting about the Four of Pentacles is the coin above the head and the feet because it's always this kind of the relationship that you're trying to kind of think about related to your own material reality and existence, but also money being on the mind constantly. And actually, how do you, how do you, how do you unravel that so that we can engage in exactly what you're talking about blunt, that we can have this mutual beneficial relationship when we start to engage in. And I think one of the things I also wanted to share, and sorry, this is, I don't mean to be that annoying 
person that's just like this is more of a comment than a question. But I I think I also just wanted to 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 share that people oftentimes think that tarot can be learned instantaneously. 30 days to learn tarot. No, it takes a lifetime actually and it takes practice and I feel everything that you shared with us today is actually a testament to that. And speaking of edge play, I feel like the whole world loves edge play but they just don't know it. Absolutely. And I think right like it goes back to it's like what of our desires are like accessible to us which of our desires are we willing to approach I also like one of like the taglines on one of my many sex work websites is growth through pain and I like really believe in that like right like I I think that there is so much of ourselves that we are missing out on if we're not willing to like step off the ledge like the fool is always the card that I draw it was I had like three years straight every reading that I got it was the fool and I'm like this is the best fucking card in the deck and like I feel like there is so much right like through like the journey of the tarot I feel like you're also it's like both like this journey of growth but it is the fool like at the beginning of the journey that's willing to step off of that ledge and I feel like would be more open to the devil and the lover because there's not all of these things you haven't like learned these things from society that like the devil is bad rather than like there are so many different aspects to the self and it is through exploring all of these different aspects of ourselves that we can gain a fuller understanding of ourselves and be in like true deep meaningful relationship with others every time i talk to you Blaine, i'm like period dot as gen z says these days <laughs> Five and Nine is an independent podcast and newsletter at the crossroads of magic work and economic justice. This show is produced by me, Dorothy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and Anna Anshaomina. While this podcast is always free, if you enjoyed it, we invite you to buy us a virtual cup of coffee. You can subscribe on Substack for just $6 a month. Your generous support helps cover our production costs and honoraria for our guest speakers. Paying subscribers get access to additional content like our taroscopes we produce with Ignota Books, standalone meditations, and discounts on workshops and classes, including the ones we run with the shipment agency. Please find us at thisis5and9.com and on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we wish you comfort and ease in these difficult times. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of rest wherever and whenever you can.